You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. In the not-too-distant future, wars will no longer exist, but there will be rollerball. I'm Ian Jones. We have an amazing career. You know how proud we are of the Houston team and what we think of you and energy. Now, there are executives who want you out. Now, you're going to retire. Retire? How can I do that? This is for your own benefit. The team, they, uh, they depend on me. right no penalties limited substitutions you can handle it it doesn't matter there's no way we're gonna lose no matter how they change a game how come uh, everyone else is being asked to play with no penalty and pressure me to quit i don't know but can't you do what you're told if you're only good get out the rule changes stay the same i'm playing with my team too late Rule changes scheduled and announced. And I'll see you in Tokyo. Games created demonstrate the futility of individual effort. If a champion defeats the meaning, then he must lose. They're afraid of each other. All the way to the top now. Next game, there won't be any substitutions allowed. No time limit. If you die, Johnny. Everybody will die. You can be made to quit. You can be forced. You to the projection booth citizens i am your host mike white joining me is mr rob st mary you know because hockey is for wusses also joining us this week is writer john kenneth muir hello thank you for having me on the show this week we are looking at rollerball the 1975 film from director norman jewison the film stars james Kahn as jonathan e the captain of the houston rollerball team based on a story by and with a screenplay written by william harrison the film is a dystopian look at the world after the corporate wars where most of the popular entertainment keeps people occupied with violence as sport rather than the lack of liberties education and disparity between the haves and have nots of course we wouldn't know anything about that today john as our guest when was the first time that you saw rollerball and what did you think 
I saw a rollerball for the first time in the mid-1980s. So it would have been on VHS at that point. My father um, it was very much into sort of movies that he, he had seen and liked and wanted to share those movies with me. And we sort of went on this... Uh, tour of films that he had appreciated, um, you know, in, in earlier years. And so we saw films like Bonnie and Clyde, Cool Hand Luke, and Rollerball was, you know, one of the features one Sunday night where we watched that together. So that was the first time I encountered it. And I, I loved it. I thought it was great. I, I had read actually some material. I remember, you know, I, I was a pretty avid reader of science fiction film reference books. And I remember that the film hadn't really garnered many positive reviews, but when I saw it, I really liked it. So I thought, huh, that's interesting. That you know, so many people seem to have uh, disliked the film, but I thought it was quite good when I saw it. I saw it years ago, but seeing it again for the show really reminded me of various aspects of it because my memory of it was more about the violence angle and as something like maybe like Death Race 2000, where it's a comment on on violence for it in television, and what I come to realize with the film that that is in there but really it seems more about corporate control and government sort of no longer exists in this universe because uh the people with the money have taken over i want to say that i saw this for the first time on television maybe like wkbd or something rollerball is not the fastest paced movie that has ever been out there it runs a little bit north or right around the two hour mark and with commercials this thing probably stretched into two and a half probably closer to three hours of being on network television which slowed it down even more than it already is and um, before we really dive into it, I have to say this was kind of more of a request, uh, a listener request. And I, I always feel bad when listeners request stuff and I don't like it. I Actually, I don't mind Rollerball, it's, but I have to say it's not up there in my favorites uh, when it comes to 70s sci-fi. But the more I have watched this film over the last few weeks, the more I have appreciated it, especially when comparing it to the remake that was done in 2002, which we'll talk about in in the second half of the show, but I just seem to remember this dragging on and on, and then I did go out and rent it, probably on VHS like you, John, and liked it a little bit more that way. The, the cast in this film is stellar. I love James Caan, and this was when he was really on top of his game. I mean, this is just a few years north of Godfather. He was really just uh, a really great 1970s box office type guy and John Houseman, who I knew from the Paper Chase. I actually was more of a Paper Chase viewer than a Rollerball viewer. He is terrific as this kind of um, menacing but polite corporate exec. The uh, John Houseman to me will always be the Smith Barney ads that I remember as a kid. John Houseman for the investment firm of Smith Barney. Good investments don't walk up bite you on the bottom and say we're here finding them takes good old-fashioned hard work research the kind they do at smith barney smith barney is among a handful of top investment firms singled out for their work in research smith barney they make money the old-fashioned way they earn it yeah, he definitely made a name for himself that way, which is kind of funny because he, both he and his uh, compatriot Orson Welles would become known as 
pitchmen yeah. in their later years, uh, whereas both of them are working on you know Citizen Kane in their early days. Yeah, so Houseman is pitching Wall Street, and uh, Wells was pitching wine. So there you go. This was very much that idea of the bread and circuses, the gladiatorial type games that are keeping people busy, keeping their minds occupied. And I don't really want to get into all the ins and outs of what rollerball is as far as the actual sport, because they explain it. Sometimes they explain it in a lot of detail. Sometimes it's just like whatever and then the other thing that's kind of nice is they keep changing the rules of the game because that's one of the ways to keep the players on their toes and amp up the violence and also a possible way of getting rid of jonathan e who is the most popular rollerball player around he is so popular that he's almost on the same level as these corporate executives and the corporations run everything and they don't want any competition the one thing that I appreciated when I watched this, and I know that this would be maddening for a modern audience, is that there is no, in the first five minutes, like montage scene that explains the game to you. It just opens with the arena, you have the Bach fugue on the organ, and the game goes. And it's kind of up to you to figure out what exactly is going on, because there's guys on skates, there's guys in motorcycles, and they're around this circle track that's on an incline. And like you said, as things go on, the rules change. So in a way, it's about the sport, but it's not really about the sport. It's about what the sport represents and what the sport does within the society. Sometimes it feels like this is Road Warrior, the home game. When I look back at the movie and, and try to contextualize it in terms of what was going on in the 70s, you know, that was the great era of film dystopias. You know, we had uh, Soylent Green, you had ZPG, which was zero population growth. Um, you had all these movies that sort of looked at so dramatically how things could go wrong in the future. Uh, THX 1138 was in there as well. You know, and they, they all sort of looked at w what could really go wrong. And a lot of them pointed to the state, that the, the state is going to become so overpowered that um, it, it's going to you know, take away love, it's going to take away freedom, all, all these things. And one thing that I like about Rollerball is that it clearly fits into that historical context uh, where we're looking at you know, how the future could go wrong. But I think in a sense, you know, in, in a way, it more accurately describes really where we are today, uh, which is where it's sort of the, uh, you know, the executive class is, is in control to some degree, where it was looking at uh, dystopia, but, but where the corporations had taken over. And I, I really like that angle because so many films, even by left-wing uh, filmmakers, you know, when they look at the future, their, their impulse is always, you know, the government is going to take over the big, bad, evil government. Rollerball avoids that and says, no, no, we, we, you know, we've been through these corporate wars and now, you know, the executive class rules. And, and I, I love the aspect of the film that basically this whole world is run like a business. And so your wife can just be transferred you away, like, away from you, like a departmental transfer on a job or something like that. I thought it was very interesting the way uh, it, it extrapolated this idea of um, business taking over. And if you look in the 80s, I mean, you had films like Robocop. Uh, that did the same thing, uh, but in a more satirical fashion to, uh, to some extent. But, it, you know, in the 80s, we always heard, you know, everything should be run as a business. Public schools, no, no, they should, it should be run as a business. I remember that was, people said that all the time in the 80s. They, it should be run just like a business. 
but movies like Rollerball and also, of course, RoboCop in the 80s say, well, maybe not so much front like a business because the the metaphor in Rollerball is pretty clearly that uh, when business is in control or corporations are in control, you know, you you have no recourse, you have no authority, you have no access to information. And you talked about the rules of the game changing, and and that's the point is that there's no safeguards. So the the rules of the game can change anytime the executive class says the rules of the game can change. Uh, and I, I just think that's something we've seen more and more in our culture in real life, where this idea is that the more businesses are in control, the more that we're not on an even playing field. So uh, I think that me- the key metaphor there in Rollerball is that idea that the rules are constantly changing according to the executive class. So let's talk about the plot a little bit. I, I talked about how they introduced the Rollerball game, but really there's a couple things that are driving this story forward. One of them, as John mentioned, is the whole idea of Jonathan E's wife being transferred from him to an executive. And that obviously irked him just a little bit. And so he kind of wants to find out why that happened, wants to find out more about the corporations. He is thirsty for knowledge. So one of the things that is moving him forward is this desire to learn more and kind of break through that. I don't want to even say glass ceiling because it's much, uh, much thicker, denser material than glass that separates him from that upper class. He wants to garner some information. So he is looking for books, looking for answers to some of his questions. One of the other things that's going on is that he is being prepped for this, instead of television, they call it multivision because there are several screens and all this kind of stuff. He's being prepped for this multivision special about his career. And he's being told by the John Houseman character that he needs to announce his retirement on the show. Houseman tells it to him rather subtly uh, in a great scene. There's this uh, amazing set piece with all of these glass almost like chandeliers but glass shards hanging down and it's great Jonathan cuts himself as he is uh, coming into the room and everything which is going to mirror some other cutting that goes on throughout the film so Houseman doesn't necessarily tell him outright you know he, he he leads him into that direction and then when Jonathan is there for this multivision special we have this great scene where there's this disembodied voice we can see the hands behind the controls of this television studio and Jonathan out in front and the the disembodied voice is basically telling him that he really needs to read this announcement. This is why he is there. And Jonathan wants nothing to do with it. And if anything, he just wants to continue this quest to find out what's going on, how are corporate decisions made, and he is not privileged to that information. The only information he really gets is just little pieces through an old player who moved into the um, rulemaking division who's named Cletus, played by Moses Gunn. And those scenes between him, uh, James Kahn, and Moses Gunn Really, really nice scenes, too, seeing these two actors go at it and just the way that Cletus does not want to give Jonathan the information, but he does kind of give as much as he possibly can. Uh, Before I I say anything else, um, I wanted to say, Rob, what you were talking about, the whole idea of the explanation of the game and everything, I'm also really glad that they didn't do that. There's one new player who comes in at one point who basically 
is just there for Jonathan to humiliate a little bit. We don't have the new player coming in to hear all the rules of the game and get all that kind of stuff like we normally would in a film made today where it's like, hey, rookie, let me explain everything to you. And the other thing that we don't have, which I appreciate, is we don't have the opening scroll to set up the world. You're just dumped into this world and try to figure it out, which I enjoy that they give you the information, but you really have to work at getting that. The only place in there that I can remember where there's any sort of explanation of how the game is played is there's a piece where I think they're trying to recruit new teammates and James Kahn's out there and he's like, okay, here's certain techniques and tactics and things like that. And if you want to play on this team, this is what you have to realize and things like that. But it's not done in that staccato montage manner that I think most modern film would do something like that. And that scene would probably be three minutes in as opposed to 40 minutes in. He's really um, explaining kind of more of the, uh, the, the good ways to defend yourself when you're out on the track more than this is the name of this type of player. You know, we get more of an explanation of Quidditch, which I think you kind of need, than Rollerball, which uh, I, I kind of appreciate that there's not that, like, okay, class, here we <laughs> here's the, the seeker and here's the, the, the golden snitch and all this kind of stuff. We just get that game right off the bat. And really the only place, and it's funny that um, John brought up RoboCop, the only place where that kind of quick hit explanation of the universe that you're dealing with, I think kind of works, is in RoboCop. It is in Starship Troopers. They're both written by Ed Newmeyer. So it works in that kind of film, but I don't think it would work in here because like you were saying, it is very slow. And for and you know, I, I guess maybe people would consider this some sort of action film or something like that, but really it's more of a psychological action film because it's James Kahn's character battling the John Houseman character. It's almost like chess. He's trying to get information and outplay him. Uh, in particular ways. I think what's sort of interesting about about the game is that, and the setup of the universe, is that we clearly see it's sort of a game with no end and no beginning, you know, being in this, you know, this, this track, and it's just like attrition. I mean, it's just like people going around and around over and over again. I mean, I guess you could say NASCAR is like that, but, you know, and, and like, you know, nailing people and, you know, knocking them over and bloodying people, and it, again, it's just works, you know, it just works so great because we see it and we see like, you know, what is this? These people are just going around bloodying each other. And, and this is the most popular game. And, and it really isn't a game where somebody can stand out, but Jonathan E against all the structure of the game has come to stand out, which is, you know, what the, the executives can't stand, you know, and, and when you mentioned it being like chess, it is that in a way, because John Houseman is up there in his booth watching, right? And he's, you know, he's got his people doing his bidding, his, his pawns or whatever, to knock down somebody who's trying to essentially be a king on the field, on the track, Jonathan A. You know, I just think it's great the way that sort of imagery works. And there's, there's one image late in the film where there's like sort of uh, fire reflected on the glass in front of John Houseman and, and, and he's watching and it's like, you can, you can just see it's like they're, they're in danger of tearing everything down they've created because they can't stand the possibility that an individual would uh, succeed uh, at the level Jonathan E has succeeded. I mean, everything is on the line for them 
in this game because this game that they've structured, some, somebody sort of beat them at the rules they set up, and they, and they do everything they can, including changing those rules to try to take him down. And so it, it is like a chess game in a way, but it's like the most pointless, repetitive chase game. But, you know, at the time, the movie was really, they, it was sold. It was like an action movie. This is, you know, everybody complaining about how violent it is. And that shows you how the times have changed because today I don't think we read it that way. And, and so the, you're able to more clearly today see what that, the metaphors are in the film because you're not, like, taken uh, aback by the level of violence. But, but, you know, make no mistake, in 1975, it's like, this is like the most violent, you know, bloody action movie ever, ever made. And, and critic, that's how critics treated it, you know? I mean, for me, just the idea that the rules are not set, it keeps going on and on and on, and it's one guy sort of standing up to the system. I mean, you have to remember, this was made in 74, it came out in 75, and 75 was the fall of Saigon, and you just had 10-plus years in Vietnam that seemed to go on and on and on forever, and it was the first television war. So in a lot of ways, I, I see this as almost like a Vietnam metaphor where you have these guys who are out battling, but they don't really know why they're battling. The people at home might not understand exactly what the plays are or why the plays even matter. And it's the guys who, like you said, who are up in the glass, who are calling the shots, who are making the rules and changing the rules and all of those things. So it's it, it's not a direct Vietnam metaphor, but it's you can see it within the zeitgeist of when it was made. I think that's a great point. I, th- I think that's a very you know clear-eyed reading. That's definitely, I think, something that you could read into that, uh, especially when you look at the you know the, the physicality of the man. You know, like their soldiers being sent. You know, at some point they're being sent overseas to stadiums and other countries as well. You know, to to fight their uh, rollerballers. But but there's really no point. There, there's really no point to the game. It's not a game where, for instance, you know, you're shooting baskets or something. You know, you're tallying up the score. It, it's like by attrition. It's like who who's left still rolling. You know, at the end of the game, you know who, who's still in one piece and can can keep moving. So yeah, it is that that does sound a lot to me like the attrition of Vietnam. And, it's a really good point. And and the connection between sport and war has always been within you know the historical context. I mean, I know within my own family when I was a kid, my mom and dad and I would go to the Highland Games. And if you go back through Scottish history, the Highland Games were used by the lords to find out who the strongest were in the various clans, and then those would be the leaders in the next battles between the clans. So the idea that that sporting competition is not connected to war in some way is in our modern world, you know, the the guy who's the, the, the main guy in the Super Bowl is not going overseas to battle in Afghanistan, unless you're Pat Tillman. But it's, you know, it was used in that way in primitive societies in earlier times. And, and what's really interesting in rollerball is that they've sort of severed the connection between succeeding in the game and being able to achieve in society. You talked before, you mentioned the term glass ceiling, and in a way, Jonathan A. has hit the glass ceiling because he can never be more than what he is then, like the celebrity best rollerballer, right? See, and when you have you know, soldiers in, in real war, like uh, General Wesley Clark or somebody like that, or Eisenhower, who became president, they succeed in war, and but then they move up. You know, they move up into the political class. There's no opportunity for Jonathan E. to go anywhere in rollerball. And I think that's what the movie's about, too. I mean, it's not only that he's lost his wife, but it's like he can't do anything about it. He's got no recourse. He cannot be 
John Houseman. You know, that's not going to happen. They've separated that link between like being able to be a celebrity and then, you know, a lot this happens with a lot of celebrities or sports stars. They they then take their fame to some other level of public role, right? And 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 he can't really do that. Um, so I think there's that aspect of the film too, is that he, he he's been forcibly retired. He can go no higher. And I don't think he likes that. I don't think he likes that he's being uh, put out to pasture at this point. Uh, so that, I think that's an aspect of the film too. Well, if you look at it, I mean, let's, let's go look at another um, episode that we did that has absolutely nothing to do with sports, but does have something to do with war is when we did our episode on first blood and you have the character of Rambo who comes back decorated war hero, medal of honor, can't come back to society. Society won't accept him. So it's kind of almost a similar allegory here where you have a guy who is really good on the track, is really good in the game or in the war, but when he tries to figure out what he can do outside of that context, everything is shut off to him. He can't be integrated back into the society after sort of everything that he's done, and the executives don't want him to have that same level of success because as long as he does, he shows society what an individual can do and they don't want the individual to have any power, which is why they, you know, they no longer have a library in the sense that you go and you look at the information Instead, you get like summaries of the information, you know, that's to keep information away from the individual. They're they're you know, they're telling you to go shop, spend money on your credit card, all that stuff. But what they're basically doing is they don't, they're, they're trying to keep people from, gathering information and starting a revolution because that idea will start with one person. But as long as people believe that there's no room for the individual, that everything has to be approved and done by this executive class or the community, you know, they're not going to have to deal with more Jonathan A's. And, that, and that, that's why they have to crush him, of course, is because he, he goes, he not only, he takes his, um, his individuality from the track to to other realms because he goes to seek out that information because the summary isn't good enough. He wants to have the real information. So he, in a way he really does become a revolutionary. Uh, he starts out as, you know, just a sports figure, but as the film goes on, you see him moving through sort of the stages of being a revolutionary saying, you know, this is wrong. You know, this shouldn't be happening to me to then sort of generalize that argument that the people shouldn't be able to do this to other people. So it's an interesting uh, character arc and, for, for uh, Jonathan. And the one sports figure that I can think of in that era who was the greatest at what he did, but they tried to take it all away from him when he went against the system, was Muhammad Ali. Because they took his license away and they wouldn't let him box because he wouldn't, he wouldn't go along with uh, the war. So you can almost, if, if you want to read it another step, you could say that in a way what he's doing is sort of a – a corollary to what Ali's struggle was at that time as well. I like that they're not just changing the rules on the track, but even trying to get Jonathan, there's one part where he's supposed to be flying to a game and he's like, yeah, I'm not going to take the helicopter this time. I'm going to go with the team instead because you're much less likely to kill the entire team than you are to just have this helicopter crash somewhere. He's a very smart guy and he knows that he's in this game. And I also think he knows that he's losing. He can't necessarily win it even though he's going to give his best and i don't know if we want to say that he does win at the end he wins in a sense but it's like i would love to see what happens two months after the end of rollerball i would like to know 
what happens to Jonathan E. after he he makes that final goal. I mean, that final shot in the film that keeps cutting in, like zooming in on him, in a way, it's as powerful, maybe a little less, than that final shot in 400 Blows, where they just make you Mm. look at the kid's face and go, see, think about this for a minute. You know, think about everything you just saw. Think about this guy. You know, it's not that simple. It's not, yeah, this may be the end of this story, but it isn't the end. And now it's up to you to think, think about all this stuff. It, it really is a much more thoughtful film than a dumb action film. And once again, I think, Mike, I'm going to give the, uh, my, my favorite uh, era of film uh, another uh, verbal blowjob here on the show. But it is that about <laughs> 70s film. I mean, they could get away with this kind of stuff that today ain't going to happen. If, if if someone tried to make this, it would get cut to ribbons in this way. It's too slow. There's no nobody knows what's going on with this game. That that's the name of the film. What are you doing? You know, you can just hear the executives moaning about this movie if they tried to make it today. Let's talk about the party scene. That party scene would never make it today. This thing goes for 15 minutes, and there's some stuff going on, but there's a lot of nothing happening it's the breather this party scene but you're also seeing the decadence of the upper classes especially with the tree tree shooting scene you would not get that in a film made today you didn't get in get in 2002 no trees were harmed in 2002 this scene and the way it's cutting between the tree shooting and jonathan talking with houseman in that pace, the the one um, moment where Jewison is dollying across all the people that are there at the party, and we're seeing, hearing all these different conversations. You know, hearing at one point they're talking about how the rollerball players aren't even human; they're robots that are made in Detroit. They're really quite beautiful in a wild kind of way. You can almost smell the lions. Don't be silly. They're made in Detroit. Yes, they're androids. They're all programmed. That's right. The whole game is played by robots. They look like men. And they do. They're loud. They're huge. It will ensure stability, expansion, and high profits for the planetary enterprise. What do you think about it? Exciting. It sounds absolutely romantic. It's gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. I know. But it's so intelligent. You would not get that scene in a film today. I think that's true, and I, I think that you know, that scene is there, and, and it and it's really kind of glorious in its own way because it, it it does serve the larger purpose. But I think you're right. It's like a studio executive looking at it today says, you know, this would this would serve sort of no purpose, you know, in the larger scheme. But of course, it really does for all the reasons you just said. Is that you know, it sort of it's it shows the decadence of the culture. It shows the meaninglessness of their lives. Uh, of those people's lives, you know, they, they don't have anything to do except go out and shoot trees. I mean, that's crazy, right? <laughs> you know, but I mean, I, I think that's why we're not in a great age of dystopian films. I mean, you know, of course, there are the Hunger Games films now, but Hollywood now, and if you look at movies of recent vintage, such as Gamer, or I believe the title was Surrogates, which they tried to sort of do dystopian films, they, they all always have to overturn the dystopia at the end of the movie. And if you look at the 70s cinema, films like um, Soylent Green or ZPG, which I mentioned before, or Rollerball, which ends 
you're not really certain what's going to happen next, you know, you're not overturning the whole society because that's really an unrealistic thing. But Hollywood wants that happy ending, especially now. So now, now you have to defeat the, the evil dystopia, turn it over and everybody's free. Now you have two hours to do that, and you have to assume that these dystopias that are featured in the film took many years to rise and cement their power. So how likely is it that there are going to be these events which suddenly overturn it? You know, but, I, but Hollywood can't deal with that kind of ambiguity today. I mean, The Hunger Games does take several films to get there, of course, but, you know, for the most part, you look at the, the films of recent vintage that are of this type, and, and they want to show you how bad the dystopia is, and then turn it over, have some one person change the whole thing in, in you know, in one fairly brief cycle, and, and then, yeah, happy ending, we can go home and be happy because we don't, we don't live in a dystopia, you know what I mean? <laughs> the 70s movies felt no obligation. Logan's run, they did overturn the dystopia, yes, it's not, it's not 100%, but generally the 70s films didn't have to provide you a happy ending, they could give you sort of an inconclusive one. Yes, Jonathan E. seems to have been victorious on the field, what happens when he walks off the track, right? We don't know. And, and it leaves you with that thought, which is that, okay, he struck a blow against authority. What happens now? Uh, and I think that's, that, that's what makes the 70s films of this type so interesting. I love the whole idea that these people don't even remember what corporations are running, which cities. There are nice little snatches of conversation in the film where you get things like, oh, the corporate wars when there were three countries and all this kind of stuff. And you get the history, but it's told through their memories. You don't have that authoritative voice saying, you know, in 2025, this happened. And in 2015, you know, 2075, this happened. You just get these people who are normal, everyday folks just saying, you know, I don't even remember which companies run which cities these days. And that's the way that it is. These things change so often. You know, I'm sure we have the mergers and all this kind of stuff. I mean, you know, I don't mean to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but I often do. I mean, if you look at even today's society, like how many companies are owned by three or four parent companies, you know, Beatrice seems to own everything. You know, you've got your Procter and Gambles and all this kind of stuff. Very similar to the way that I think in this world of rollerball, you've got it boiled down to seven corporations that run everything. And you know that they're probably fighting with amongst themselves still. Well, look at just well, the film business and the media business. I mean, that seems to be like that, too. Okay, who owns what studio right now? Like, who, what changed hands when? Huh? People want to say it's a liberal media or it's a conservative media, but that's not strictly what it's about. It's a corporate media. All, all our media companies, what, there's like six, six corporations own every news source thereabouts, except on the internet. You know, I mean, except, you know, activist sites or whatever. You know, I mean, it, it is this idea that, you know, corporations are people, my friends, right? <laughs> they're, they're everywhere. And, and, and a few of them are controlling everything you see in here. And they want to tell, they, they, I mean, they benefit when you say, oh, okay, this station is the liberal station, this station is the conservative station. But the fact is they're all owned by the same masters and they're just putting a spin on the information they still choose to put out. You know, uh, if you look at some of the recent surveys that show you something like, you know, if you watch Fox, you know, you're going to be exposed to demonstrably false information 60% of the time. MSNBC, 44% of the time. You know, it's just like, wow. Okay, well, who benefits? The news used to be the glue that holds us together. Now it's the thing that separates us into our little camps, and we're distracted. We're, We're distracted just as if it were 
rollerball, the the bread and circuses, you know. Oh, look at these people fighting on uh, on Fox. Look at these people fighting on MSNBC. So we sit there and look at at that, and we take sides like it's a sporting event. But we're not really looking at sort of what the important things in the society are. So it, you know, it's interesting. Uh, rollerball takes in terms of sports, but you could certainly look at it in news and make the same kind of argument. Oceania has always been at war with East Asia, and East Asia has always been at war with Oceania. I mean, it is just depending on what channel you've got on that. Those are the two messages that you're hearing: red states, blue states. Democrats, Republicans, whatever kind of things you want to do, liberal, conservative, yeah, you you go up the chain far enough and you're going to find one or two people just pulling the strings. Never forget all the victims of the great cola wars of the 1980s. Right here, right now, I want to ask John, how do you think that this kind of compares with the rest of the science fiction and fantasy films of the 70s. So folks know John actually wrote a book with that title, The Science Fiction and Fantasy Films of the 70s. How is Rollerball kind of in that camp? Well, it's certainly the the big trends of of the early 70s, pre-Star Wars. Now, everything changed after Star Wars in 1977 as far as the science fiction film was concerned. But pre-1977, there were just you know, scads of these uh, dystopian films um, that looked at, you know, where are we going? What's going to happen to us? What kind of government will we take? You know, will, will pollution, you know, destroy us? Will, will we have famine? All these things. But they, all, all these films from that age, 1970 to about 1977, really, if you think about Logan's Run being in 1976, you know, concerned this idea of a difficult and probably really bad future world where the mistakes we've made leading up till now uh, involving it could be war, it could be our food supply, it could be overpopulation, you name it, that those are going to pay off and change our culture into something we wouldn't recognize and which sort of destroys the individual. You know, so Rollerball is really of a piece with those films to a large extent. I think that Rollerball is actually a, a, a great film of that time period because it does work on the metaphorical level. And, you know, I think today, by our standards, it is probably a little slow, but I wonder if at the time, especially because it was always judged in terms of its level of violence and action, you know, that that, that wasn't the case. You know, because it seems at the time that people judged it as being this, you know, extremely fast-moving, action, violent sort of thriller. But if you look at another film from the same year, another dystopian movie, Death Race 2000, uh, you know, it, it certainly seems to move with a little more speed, but they would, they, they had wheels and <laughs> you know, they could go 65, 70 miles an hour. You can't literally do that on roller skates and rollerball, you know, and, and Death Race actually today looks more violent. I think it's, I think it's much more bloody than rollerball was, but, but it was made actually to compete with rollerball. And, and those two films, I think, started the trend that you've seen carried through today with the Hunger Games, and you had films like it in the 80s, like The Running Man, which say, basically, we're going to feature a dystopian society, but we're going to do it through the rubric of a game, that these societies of the future are all corrupt, and I guess there's a movie called The Blood of Heroes, which is also sort of post-apocalyptic, maybe dystopian, that say, you know, these games are what everybody becomes obsessed with, and then the comment being our society is obsessed with sports, so why wouldn't we develop a sport, a sort of blood sport, that would then distract us? But, but all these dystopian movies postulate the idea of some central game that distracts everybody from how bad things are elsewhere, that the, it's, the, it's the bread and circuses principle. You know, but I, if you go back before Rollerball 
and before Death Race 2000. I don't think you'll find many examples of that. So in a way, Rollerball is tremendously influential. Uh, I think you have to say Death Race 2000 is too. But again, Death Race 2000 was Roger Corman's way to compete with what he thought was going to be a major hit. Uh, so you know, in, in a way, Rollerball was impacting that as well. If you go back, I don't know how many films you know, pre-rollerball focused on a dystopia and a game within that dystopia that sort of represented all the problems of the future. So I, I think rollerball really fits in with the 70s, but it also inspired so much of what we've had since. The Hunger Games, I mean, you know, certainly, uh, you know, people love those films today, but, I mean, you, go, you have to go back to rollerball. And the same thing with The Running Man in the 80s, Arnold Schwarzenegger, is that, well, what are we really talking about there? We're talking about TV and sports and how people become obsessed on that and don't pay attention to the fact that, you know, people are starving or the economy is bad or that nobody has health care or what have you. So you have to say rollerball was tremendously influential. I think the only one that really pops to mind, I mean, you can go all the way back to like the 10th victim or the seventh victim. I think it was the short story was the seventh, but the movie was the 10th. But for me, the film that really kind of encapsulates a lot of this stuff was Das Millionspiel, The Million Games from 1970, which if you look at that film, you see so much more in common that film is a direct correlation with The Running Man even more than The Running Man was with the Stephen King short story. There is so much similarity in, I think, what, 15, 16 years difference there between the two. Great, great film, but it is definitely not the... It is mostly a one-man story. It is not the lavish... Uh, I mean, you do have the pageantry of the television studio, very much like you'll see with Killian and the all-star running man dancers, those kind of things. But you don't have the team dynamic that you're going to have and the facelessness. I think that's one of the things that you hit on before about rollerball is that these players are basically just the pawns. These are supposed to be faceless people. We should not be ch chanting. Jonathan, Jonathan, Jonathan. We shouldn't care who these people are. They are just there to amuse us. And really, it is a break with what the corporations have in mind that this one man has become uh, someone that you can recognize on the court, someone that you can chant for, someone that you can pin your hopes on. So, you know, we kind of do that a little bit with Ben Richards in The Running Man, and he does become this kind of force for change. I mean, literal change going out and helping the resistance and all this, but I see the way that Jonathan is being portrayed as much different than I see these other kind of one man, as you were talking, the one man who is able to stand up against the rest of this dystopian society. And whether he has helpers like Yafet Kodo or not, Jonathan really, even though he's got Moon Pie and Cletus and a couple other folks that are helping him out here and there, he really is just one man against the world and one man who's supposed to not even stand up really should should just go being back to part of the pack. Right. He, he should be cannon fodder like the rest of them. You know, that's, you, 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 I mean, I made the NASCAR comparison before. I mean, in a way it's like it. There's some people who like NASCAR because of the crashes. You have to assume there's some people who like rollerball because they like seeing the people get hurt. Right. You know, you're not thinking of them as personalities. You're almost taking out your um, feelings of rage or inequity or whatever, uh, you know, watching him play. Oh, yeah, you know, he nailed him. He got him, he, you know. 
that guy's not walking off the field. You know, there's there's that sense of them as you know being up there as as cannon fodder to be to be wounded. Um, and Jonathan is clearly not that. But but as you said, he's kind of really no recourse. He he has no real ally. Once he walks off that track, what's going to happen to him? And that last game where they have taken away all the rules, and it is just basically a game in which to kill Jonathan, and the way that the track is just littered with bodies and people on fire and just destruction, and him skating around the bodies and just being that lone man on the track making that last goal, just so powerful just works so so well i'm just reminded of you know as you said they take away the rules and i hear the voice of walter subcheck in my head this is not nom this is bowling there are rules john you brought up zpg and i think zpg is definitely one of the most underrated and underseen dystopian science fiction films I'm always reminded of ZPG, especially when watching Children of Men. It feels like uh, Children of Men kind of speaks directly to ZPG. I don't know if I'm the only person who thinks that. But even with Children of Men, which is this really dark sci-fi, nobody-can-have-children kind of thing, you have the hope, and you have that thing at the end, and you don't get that level of hope with ZPG. It is so dark, and you really just are so depressed watching it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think that film is really strong for for so many reasons. I, you know, in, in Japan, I mean, they you know there aren't enough children, and some grandparents who want grandchildren they they get dolls that can act like a grandchild. I mean, that's true. I mean, and you see that in the movie. He's walking sort of soulless, uh, children automatons walking around because people can't have children, and it's creepy as hell. But e- even Children of Men, which I think is a is a great film, like you said, it offers some sliver of hope at the end. Um, because, you know, and, and it's not a Hollywood film, but, but it's still created in that milieu that sort of demands that we have a happy ending, you know? So we can, we say, okay, it's going to be okay. The human race isn't going to die because this child was born, that child is going to live. And, so, you know, it's coming back. Some, you know, we're not going to be sterile. We're, you know, something is going to happen. You know, we'll, we'll all be saved and phew, the world is okay. But, you know, with a movie like ZPG, I mean, it's just brutal about human nature. I mean, the, you know, the, the neighbors are encouraged to rat each other out, you know? And it's like, oh, that person's pregnant. You know, rat them out and then publicly, like, drag them out into the street. And then, like, a, suff- a suffocation tent comes down and kills the, the people who've been outed for trying to have children. I mean, it's just, it's so dark about human nature. Um, you know, and again, you, you're not going to overturn that dystopia in a day. There, there's no way. Nobody has any power to do it. Uh, I think that film is really really underrated and has been unknown for too long. So when it came to reactions, we've mentioned before about the people reacting to the level of violence in the film, and I do have to say that the death of Moon Pie is amazingly violent, and I think it's it comes across more violent just because he is such a vivacious character. You know, He's pretty much the only person other than James Caan that we care about in the film. And so him being killed is almost a stand-in for what if Jonathan E. were killed. When it comes to the other reactions, I mean, I tried to get uh, James Conn to be on the show. Uh, surprisingly, never got an answer. But I know that he's not necessarily that big of a fan, or at least wasn't at one time. Somebody asked him what the film was about, and he said about two hours. 
not a huge one. I know that um, author uh, William Harrison wasn't a big fan at one point, though he did come back and do the audio commentary, and he was there for the extras and all this stuff. The DVD release of this actually... Rob, the guy who did the DVD extras for this film was our friend Jeffrey Schwartz. Yeah. So he uh, put all that together. Yeah, I saw his name in the end of the credits, so that was pretty cool on those. Um, as for the death of Moon Pie, what it reminded me of, because it's him and the way it's shot and in slow motion, for some reason it, it echoed back watching Platoon and the death of um, of Willem Dafoe's character as he like raises his arms up and falls to his knees in slow motion, I remember, in Platoon. So so I, I had this sort of flash between the staging of both of those. I know Harrison, like I said, he was friendly enough to the film when it came to the audio commentary, the extras, all this kind of stuff. Though he... Um, did have an essay in his collection called The Mutilation of Rollerball, Mutilations of Rollerball, which is a very telling <laughs> title. <laughs> but uh, he talks a little bit about the making of the film. I mean, it's his essay just specifically on Rollerball in that uh, book of essays. It's maybe only about five pages, and he talks about things, and he, he has this kind of staccato style in this as far as, like, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And he does complain a little bit. He talks about how one of the actresses couldn't necessarily act. I think he might have been talking about Maude Adams, uh, and he was just uh, kind of going through all of the things that changed with the story. He did talk about how the executives at one point, he wanted what was it? He wanted Jonathan to die at the end, but they said that he had to live, so it's like, you know, he's like, this was my first concession of many concessions that I was going to make. So, not necessarily the best experience with Hollywood, though he did get paid a lot of money when he really needed some money, though he does talk about how, you know, the IRS took half of it, so his wife ended up, she she was working, she was the only breadwinner for the family while he was working on some stories. He got paid for Rollerball, that lasted a little bit, the IRS took his money, and then uh, she went back to work. So, it's a nice little story, and if folks get a chance, I definitely, definitely recommend it. And the short story that Rollerball was based on, The Rollerball Murders, again, probably about 20 pages, but you really see the seeds of so much of what's going to happen in the film in that short story. And he really, um, I mean, this was adapted by him for the screen, his first screenplay. And I thought he did a terrific job of changing his short story into a feature-length thing. And then Norman Jewison just bringing a lot to the game. I mean, Jewison, to me, solid, solid director, He's done some great work. Uh, I mean, he's done some of my favorite films with uh, Jesus Christ Superstar and Fiddler on the Roof and a lot of other films. So, terrific guy and a very, very solid job of directing. And then the other thing I wanted to point out was the use of the music and just that kind of classical score done through like synthesizer at one point. Very interesting. I mean, this was how many years away were we from uh, Clockwork Orange here? Just a couple, right? Four years. Right. So it was kind of a, a little Clockwork Orange-ish there, but I thought that it worked really well for this film. Well, I think that um, it, it reminds me of a story. When I wrote my book about Sam Raimi and I interviewed folks who had worked on The Evil Dead, I, I talked to the cinematographer for the film and I asked him, you know, whether he liked the film. He said, you know, I can't 
really face it because I look at the footage and it's like footage from a war movie because I remember every single shot. I remember you know everything we fought for, everything we did. So it's hard for me to really objectively look at it as a film or as art. And, you know, I think that's true. I think, you know, behind the scenes stories are always really interesting. I mean, I love them. I love to hear, you know, what people were thinking, how they did it, uh, things like that. But in some sense, you have to separate that, to be able to separate that and say, look at this as a work of art, as a text. And the question therefore becomes not was rollerball easy to make or what, you know, what was going on with rollerball, but does it work when you watch it as a work of art? Does, does, does it succeed? Does it, does it convey to you some essence, you know, some universal essence of humanity or tell us something about ourselves or make you feel a certain way that you think was what the artist intended, separate from all the struggles that went into the making of the film? And, you know, for me, the answer is yes. I think that, you know, Rollerball works as a coherent whole, as, as this you know, as an organizational idea in art, you know, that we accept things that are unacceptable because we're distracted, because we're busy, that, you know, that society, freedom isn't free in the sense that, you know, if we don't protect our freedoms, that somebody's going to be there to grab them and, and take them away. I mean, there are, there are all kinds of ways you can look at rollerball in uh, an artistic rubric, totally separate from how the author felt or whatever, even though that he was the progenitor of the material. You know, and I, and I think the answer for me is is simply that Rollerball is a really successful film. That the, the metaphor works as far as like the, the track. You're going around and around, and you you never win, but every time you go around, you get a little more bruised. Um, I mean, that seems like a pretty good metaphor for life. So, you know, I, I think that uh, critics at the time were not re- really able to see it in that sense of of what its artistry is, uh, and instead, you know, for one thing. In the 70s, critics looked at science fiction as a kid genre, for the most part. And so they were debauched because, oh, you know, we're expecting to go see Kitty Land, and when, you know, we see people beating each other up and getting bloody. So they, they didn't know what to make. A lot of critics didn't know what to make of, of Rollerball. So, I, you know, I think that time is the great corrective, <laughs> in a sense, that you can, you can go back and look at something and say, and see more clearly what its historical context was. You can look at it divorced from all the events that occurred around the making of it. I mean, you know, you can just look at Waterworld and say it was like the most expensive movie ever made. But is that the whole story of Waterworld? No. Just like, you know, the whole story of Rollerball isn't, you know, the, whatever was going on with it. So, so anyway, I, I just think that I, I do think that Rollerball is actually a, a really, in its own way, beautiful and relevant science fiction film that time has sort of vindicated in a sense because we, we are moving ever closer. I mean, I don't think we're necessarily going to have a 1984 state. I, I think it's much more likely with Citizens United and all these other things that we're going to have corporate controlled state. And I think that looks a lot more plausible to me in 2015 than, you know, than like the world of Logan's Run, maybe, which I love. I love that film, but, you know, I, I don't think we're all going to be living in shopping malls anytime soon. But the thing is, you know, Rollerball, you know, it should get some points for being, for showing us. You know, going in the direction that we're going, I guess, that's just what I'm saying. So I think it works as, as, a, as, a, as a text, as a work of art. Well, you mentioned that the critics at the time, uh, some of them didn't know what to make of it. And when I was talking about that we were doing this episode on Facebook, I had some friends of ours from other shows go, man, that movie puts me to sleep. It's slow and it's talky. And and. To, to a certain extent, Mike, it's funny that uh, you said James Kahn, at least in some interviews, said that he wasn't too big of a fan of it. And at times, I think part of the reason why modern audiences today are like, uh, you know, it's kind of slow, is that he's not a very excitable guy. 
It's like he's very <laughs> subdued throughout the film, yeah. and his delivery. And I'm looking in the notes, and you haven't mentioned it yet, so I'm going to bring it up because I had the exact same thing when I was looking at it. Is, oh, I'm so glad it wasn't just me. Is, I'm so glad his delivery at times is like the subdued delivery of Adam Sandler. Now, when you see Adam Sandler movies and he's all like, what are you doing? And he's all like crazy and screaming. That's one delivery pitch that he has. But he has this like, hey, how you doing? Oh, yeah, what's going on? He's got this sort of like low kind of um, almost the sort of intimidated character, I guess, maybe is the way to say it. I I don't know if I'm really bringing it across, but his delivery is that way. And it almost feels like Adam Sandler watched Rollerball and stole James Conn's delivery. Even a little bit with the accent, you know, sometimes, because Conn's kind of doing like the, the Houston accent in here, and just, yeah, the subdued, I'm so glad that you thought this too, Rob, because I've always have felt crazy about this, that it always sounds to me like Sandler's doing the subdued, the subdued Sandler is the subdued James Conn. We're going to have to find some bites and match them up against each other so people know what we're talking about here. Which means now I'm going to have to go through some Adam Sandler films, so I guess I made my own bed when it came to that one. <laughs> Don't uh, stick your uh, hand in that gutter too quick. Wait till this ball comes down on the track. Don't get too anxious. I think I'll take your arm right off. I was wrong. You were right. You're the best. I'm the worst. Uh, you're very good looking. I'm not attractive. It's funny, we kind of started off the year with Saturday Night Fever and talking about what disco meant as far as a cultural phenomenon of the 1970s. And one thing that people tend to forget is that roller skating was this cultural phenomenon as well. I mean, roller skating has been around for a long time. I mean, the wheel was invented. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) Shoes were invented. I think at least since the 20s, because I think there was a heyday of it during the jazz era of roller skating. Yeah, definitely. And it had been with us and it would wax and wane throughout the years. And the 1970s was definitely one of those waxing periods as far as roller skating and popular culture being together. I mean, roller derby, the whole sport of roller derby was a 40s, 50s phenomenon, but it carried through, was still with us. Was I even remember seeing televised roller derby games back in the 70s and 80s. And we had a lot of movies that had roller skating as a theme in the 1970s. The oldest one I could really find that had it super prominent was Kansas City Bomber with Raquel Welch back in 72. But then after Rollerball, like especially in the late 70s, we got a lot of stuff, especially when roller skating and disco kind of joined together. We got things like Roller Boogie and especially Xanadu. I mean, Xanadu is like, it feels like such an end of an era. We talked a little bit about that when we were talking about the Apple a few years ago. The 1970s did not go quietly into that good night. They had a lot of crap that was kind of in the early 80s, like Xanadu, where it's just mixing all this stuff together. So, like the dancing, the roller skating, the disco music, the, you know, this kind of a throwback to the early days where we've got Gene Kelly in the film, all this kind of stuff. And so it was interesting that, um, 
we had this kind of uh, resurgence or, or injection of roller skating into popular culture at this one particular moment in time. So let's rise for our corporate anthem to be followed by an interviewed by a modern-day roller derby player, uh, actress Ashley Atkinson. And we'll be right back after these brief messages. Are you tired of the same old stuff Hollywood puts out week after week? You know, all those less-than-appealing remakes? Those films with over-the-top CG and no storyline? Well, we don't have to take it anymore thanks to the 2015 B-Movie Celebration. Polyscope Media presents the 9th Annual B-Movie Celebration. In 2015, we're going to go back in time, back to 1985 to be exact. The 9th Annual B-Movie Celebration will feature the following films from this time period. Fright Night. Malibu Express. The Last Dragon. Invasion USA. Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins. Return of the Living Dead. Trancers. Reanimator. Morons from Space. The Stuff. Life Force. Defcon 4. Damnation Alley. Better Off Dead. Godzilla 1985. Along with those 80s classics, we're going to showcase The Blob from 1958 and Death Race 2000 from 1975. So pack those bags, recharge that flux capacitor, and join us for the 9th Annual B-Movie Celebration on August 14th, 15th, and 16th, 2015 at the Brown County Playhouse in Nashville, Indiana. For updated information on this event, bookmark the bmoviecelebration.com website using your favorite browser, and we promise to have you home back in time. Titles mentioned in this promo are subject to change without notice. The Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts podcast is an official sponsor of the 9th Annual B-Movie Celebration. There is a place where rapping leprechauns rub shoulders with wrestling women and mad doctors. There is a place where domestic dwellings are terrorized by killer beds and satanically possessed appliances. There is a place where nations battle for survival whilst tasty geezers with shooters and football hooligans run riot upon the streets. There is a place where the underdog strives for sporting glory whilst hitmen and vampire motorcycles go on curses of bloody revenge. There is a place where Nicolas Cage punches a bear in the face. The name of the place? The Crash and Burn Movie Podcast, of course. www.crashandburnmoviepodcast.co.uk Be there and listen to us waffle on. You may be entertained. For you, the listeners of the Projection Booth Podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a 30-day free trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. You can download A Scanner Darkly by Philip K. Dick or another book of your choice for free by trying audible.com and it's yours to keep even if you cancel your subscription. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com forward slash projection booth. Again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash projection booth for your free audiobook. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good 
party cinema related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We hate movies every Tuesday. When did you get into roller derby? I sort of had a gradual immersion into roller derby. I found out about it from my then boyfriend in 2004. And he had told me that someone had told him that they were starting a roller derby league in New York City and that you didn't really need to know how to do anything. (laughs) You just needed to show up and have skates. And I had skated as a child. I was uh, a frequent visitor to our roller rink in Little Rock, Arkansas, where I grew up. And I loved skating and we would have competitions. And I remember being so thrilled when I was nine because the eight and under and nine and above were sort of the kids' divisions for speed skating competitions just locally at the rink. And the girl whose parents owned the rink was like my nemesis because she would beat me, but she was the only girl that could beat me. And when I graduated out of the division that she stayed in, I was like, yes, because she was younger than I was. And so I felt like I could rule the roost for at least a couple of years. <laughs> so I ended up not actually doing it when I first heard about it. I knew they had a Yahoo group and I sort of lurked. That's how long ago this was. We were reliant on Yahoo groups. And I would lurk around the edges of this Yahoo group and then found out that they were doing something called a Roller Rumble, which was a series of speed heats underneath the Brooklyn Queens Expressway, outdoors, on asphalt, in the parking lot, basically, right under the bridge. And I quit the job that I had that was uh, daytime waitressing at a 24-hour vegan vegetarian diner in Manhattan and (laughs) said, how many practices do I need to come to in order to compete? And they said, uh, well, there's four left until the event. And I was like, if I come to all four, can I compete? And they said, sure. So I borrowed a pair of skates and went to four practices. And then I won the initial roller rumble. But then, right before we started to pick teams about four months later, because this was in the period, 2004 was a time for my league where we were lucky if we could get 10 girls together to practice. You know, if not, you were just sort of working on skills because you didn't have enough people to have to front two teams without any substitutions. So when we finally got enough and started forming teams, I booked my first off-Broadway show and had to bow out. So I was then not assigned to a team. I was assigned to a team a couple of years later after I had done a series and a bunch of different stuff. And then I only skated on the Manhattan Mayhem for about a year and a half. And then I got a Broadway show and I got taken out for that. And then they became national champions and I just started announcing instead of skating. Let's go back to the roller rink. What was the roller rink like? Because that was kind of like a a social place plus skating, right? Oh, yeah. It was amazing. I had birthday parties there. I remember that. I had one birthday party that was awesome. It was probably my eighth birthday where uh, it was a sort of new wave rock and roll rock star birthday party. And everyone came as their favorite rock star. And I remember we had a big cake in the snack bar area. And then we would all go out and skate. And my friend, my best friend broke her arm. I was dressed as Tina Turner. It was awesome. (laughs) 
But my brother used to go there too, and they would have like really sort of like older kid nights and then younger kid matinee skates. And so I would see my brother, we would be like ships in the night where my mom would come and pick me up from the Saturday day skate and then let my brother, who was five years older, off for the nighttime skate. And apparently he was a badass and all these girls really liked him. And I remember getting sort of drilled by the girls that worked at the skating rink about my brother when I just wanted to be out there skating in the middle of the afternoon. But now it's, I think it's in Easter Seals or something like that. You know, much like in New York, you can't really have skating rinks in areas where the real estate is in demand. They're too much of a of a drain on resources. We don't actually have a roller skating rink that is a permanent structure in any of the five boroughs in New York City anymore. Nowhere. We definitely did <laughs> when we started. When Gotham Girls started, there were several rinks, and we just sort of skated at each of them until each of them blipped out of existence, you know, and then finally got to the point where we had to rent a, at at the time we were in what is a cigar factory and a sort of former cigar factory. And we bought a sport court floor and laid it down. And that was our first practice facility called the Crash Cat. And that was way out in Queens. But that was after we had gone through the Skate Key in the Bronx and Empire in Brooklyn. And then we had a whole season where we practiced outside because there weren't any rinks left. So we practiced on uh, asphalt basketball courts outside, that sort of thing. So you were born in 77. By the time you're nine years old and able to skate with the big kids, it's uh, 86. Are you using the old school skates or are you doing the inline, the rollerblade kind of thing? Oh, no, no, no. Um, I had a brief sojourn into rollerblading in about ninth grade, but that was very much a solitary activity. That was not something I wanted other people necessarily to witness witness me doing. I'm not even sure why that was the case, but whereas skating had always been a very social experience for me, my time with inline skating was a very solitary experience. Maybe because I wasn't as good at it, I'm not sure, but I've I've certainly, I've skated with, you know, four on the floor speed skates that are not in lines several times in my life. I had a period in the 90s when I skated to and from work when I lived in New York for the first time and all these other periods, but I have some photos of me on in lines from ninth grade and I'm literally in my parents' driveway and I didn't leave it. That was the only place where I inline skated. I didn't go out on the streets. I did no distance. It was just back and forth and back and forth. When it comes to roller derby, is it the old school type skate? What is the skate like for this? The regular skate. It's not an inline skate. I have heard people sort of posit theories about what would happen if you played derby with an inline skate, but really the stability would be such an issue. It's the regular old speed skate. People modify their wheels, their bearings, their plates, their boots. Um, There's specialty items of all sorts. Uh, So you wear the regular skates, and then you wear knee pads. What is required are knee pads, elbow pads, wrist guards, a helmet, and a mouth guard. And a mouth guard. Wow. And a mouth guard. Yeah, and they do an equipment check before every game. So how did being a derby girl, how did that kind of compare to the world of rollerball? 
Well, first of all, I had forgotten how many things that over the course of 10 years, you know, the Gotham Girls, uh, which is the league that I skated with, Gotham Girls Roller Derby are now 10 years old. They just celebrated their 10-year anniversary. And I forgot the things that started as rollerball jokes that then got repeated so many times that I forgot that they were even rollerball references. As a matter of fact, uh, there's also men's derby now, uh, the Men's Roller Derby Association, and one of the great skaters for the New York Shock Exchange, which is the men's roller derby team, is Jonathan R., who was a former figure skater. Uh, he was an uh, artistic skater and is an incredible skater for that team. But I had forgotten, because his name is actually Jonathan, that Jonathan R. is actually a play on Jonathan E. and didn't even think about it until the crowd started chanting, Jonathan, which is, of course, what they do at the men's roller derby games, always for him, every time he comes on the track. Other than that, than the sort of deliberate jokes, uh, use of fonts, you know, in in flyers and such. What was really interesting to me, it was it was twofold. The fact that my friends are on their 10th season, and I have a friend that has skated all 10 seasons with the Gotham Girls, and she is arguably a Jonathan E. in that she's so visible and so immediately recognizable to thousands and thousands and thousands of people around the world. You know, because there's 1,200, no, 1,300 roller derby leagues playing in the world right now. Leagues worldwide. So that's a ton of people. And they all know my friend Susie Hot Rod. She was in the ESPN women, uh, the ESPN magazine where they showed everybody the body issue where everybody's naked. She was in that. She has a playing card. She has a video game. It's crazy. She's super visible. And it's her 10th year. And no one's forcing her out. But now that Gotham has a five-year championship winning streak, people are starting to get mad about it because they are so good, because they are at the top of their game. And no one expected a dynasty to occur in a game this young. So that's an interesting parallel. Also, the whole sort of sub-conversation about the changes in rule set. <laughs> I don't know if you remember, uh, you know, there's that whole thing with, this, uh, of course you do, the no penalties rule set and then the no substitutions, no time limit rule set. There was a couple of years back, there, there have been tons of rule set changes in modern roller derby because we're kind of making it up. And so just as there are changes in strategy, there are changes in rule sets, there are changes in how we practice. But we just went to a no minor penalty rule set a couple of years ago, which means that things that would have been called as minor penalties, and if you accumulate four, your fourth minor penalty sends you to the penalty box. One major or four minors sends you to the penalty box, and then the minors start over. And you can only have seven major penalties. Your seventh ejects you from the game. So you can have 28 minors or seven majors before you're out. But they just went to a rule set where those are no longer applicable unless they have a major impact on gameplay, which is interesting. Uh, So there are things that we were trained specifically not to do because we would be penalized that now, unless they have a major effect on the game, while they're still considered infractions, they will not be penalized at all. What are some of these things? You know, there's stuff like back blocks, 
Like, you really aren't supposed to ever hit someone in the back. Uh, unlike rollerball, there's a very specific, which always, uh, it made me laugh watching watching it because, A, I wish we had motorcycles. Those things are so sweet. When you get tired, it'd be so nice to just grab onto the back of a motorcycle to take you around for a little while. But also, we have really clearly demarcated zones of engagement on the body, and they are sort of from the shoulder to the upper thigh, you know, the sort of butt area, upper thigh area, in the front and in the side, never in the back. You can't hit someone in the back. But under the no minors rule set, you can, apparently, as long as it doesn't improve your standing. If you hit someone in the back and they fall and you jump over them and gain position, then that's a major penalty and you go and sit in the box. But you, I guess, if you're, you know, and gee, I think if you're a dirty player, but there's got to be whole, there'll be whole groups of people that don't even think this way. But if if you want, you can, I guess, just hit people in the back all you want, as long as it doesn't visibly impact gameplay. You can be a little nuisance and tappity tappity taparoo all upon some opposing player. Uh, but what this is going to mean is that I, I have like this ethical mindset on it where, though I was a really dirty player, I, I should not be really espousing any, any ethics on the, on the track. But it's interesting to me that they, that I still think of it as a good, bad thing. You know, you're good if you don't do it. You're bad if you do that, if you sit there and hit people in the back. But because they're not, minor penalties anymore there will be girls that come up that don't have that mindset and it will just be about what is strategic and what is not and i find that really interesting how does the level of violence compare thankfully death is not a commonplace thing in uh in our version of roller derby thank god uh there have been major injuries no joke uh there's a young woman who was paralyzed several years ago uh, named uh, Tequila Mockingbird, who's an attorney who uh, someone skated over her vertebrae. And so she is, uh, I see periodic updates on her. She has started walking with assistance. Um, she's a very persistent, driven young lady. Uh, and she's incredible, an incredible human, uh, and moved town so that she could get the physical help that she needed. But, I mean, we don't kill anybody. We also you also can't grab with fingers in derby. You you can't clutch at anyone. Uh, we also just don't get up as much speed. I mean, these girls go fast, but motorcycles would add greatly to the level of speed that we could get up to. And I played on a ba- on a flat track. There are scores more flat track derby teams than there are bank track derby teams just because you can play flat track anywhere. Bank track, you actually have to have a facility built. Uh, but I've never played on a bank track, but I've heard even though it's really tiring to get up to the top of that bank all the time, that on the way down, the amount of speed you can get is brutal if you hit somebody full force with it. And you really can do those, spectac- those spectacular wipeouts in rollerball where there's like five people going down at once. Those are completely real. I see, I see that all the time in roller derby. Just huge pileups. But luckily, nobody gets dragged unconscious off the track, thank God, generally. You said roller derby is a relatively young sport. 
how is that possible? I mean, I remember Raquel Welch as the Kansas City bomber, and I remember you know shots of women in the 40s playing roller derby. Why do you call it a young sport? Well, I think modern roller derby is a young sport. So the sport actually began in the 30s with Leo Seltzer, who, and it began as a series of endurance marathon races and always a gentleman with an eye out for what was lucrative, Mr. Seltzer, soon realized that people came for the collisions when bodies would intersect in the space on the track and began devising a game that would focus on that. Now, the games of the 70s, there was always a good team and a bad team. There was the red, there were the red helmets and the white helmets. There were two jammers. We have one. They were always played on a banked track, and they were co-ed games. Uh, there was also a sort of, uh, I would, I guess, I would compare it to pro wrestling aspect of theatricality. Uh, you know, the red team always lost. The white team always won. Those were just the rules. One team was the good guys. One team was the bad guys. And so when we, and I say we speaking for people that I probably shouldn't be speaking for, uh, when, when the people of the 20, the young ladies of the 21st century started skating roller derby, they wanted sort of that counterculture flair to it, but very quickly tired of anything that would influence the outcome of the games. For example, I remember when I first started, we would do do some, we toyed with the idea of planned fight, basically, of being like, yeah, yeah, we should fight at this point. And that almost immediately went out the window because while you were fighting, other people were scoring. And because no one is getting paid and because it's all self-generated and skater-operated, there is a huge competitive streak and no one wants to lose. And if showboating is going to make you lose, people quit showboating very quickly. So there's just a lot of differences in the sort of paid player organizations of the 70s and the female-operated skater and volunteer nonprofit models that are happening now, basically. Why was it that roller derby had this resurgence in your mind? I think there were a lot of us that, and by us, I mean women around my age and the sort of, in the 10 years around my age, in the 30s and women in their 30s and 40s, watched roller derby, you know, in Saturday mornings or Friday nights on TV for a brief shimmering moment, you know, and weird incarnations of it that tried to happen in the 80s, almost into the 90s. And I think as a Gosh, the why is a really interesting thing. I'm sort of talking as I reason it out to myself. Um, I also think Title IX had a lot to do with enhancing women's sport experience. You know, the fact that colleges could no longer get away with funding a whole men's sports program and leaving the girls behind uh, made for a lot more girl jocks. And I got to tell you, as many... Girls there were when I started that didn't know how to skate. They were almost all to a man good in their bodies. There's something that drives a girl to want to do this. And not everybody was a great skater starting out, but they were all athletic. Um, so I think the combination of sort of Title IX plus Riot Girls plus women looking for an aggression outlet 
in a way that was productive and fun and self-moderated, I think was I think it was just the right time for it. It started in Texas, this modern version, in 2001. I would love to know why they say it began. I know for my part, I did it because it sounded immediately like the most fun thing I'd ever heard of. <laughs> no question. So obviously, Rollerball and the Rollerball remake, very steeped in sci-fi. But a film like Whip It, which was based in Texas, comes out in 2009. Right. It's supposed to be very based in reality. Did you see a lot of reality in Whippet when you saw it? I have such mixed feelings about Whippet. I really supported the idea of that film. I thought Ellen Page was an interesting choice for that film, only because she always seems so sad all the time to me. She has like those perpetually wet eyes, you know what I mean? <laughs> so uh, I thought, oh, that's interesting. Uh, I thought the rest of the casting was pretty cool. For some reason, the one thing I think of is that weird underwater scene where they manage to hold their breath for like what appears to be 20 minutes so that they can make out underwater in a pool. But what I actually miss about from with it is what I I most identified with in Rollerball, which is there were moments uh, looking at James Caan where you see the focus that you get in a game where that that sort of straight line between intention and action, which was something that I felt was not really displayed as much in Whip It, because things kind of got lost in the uniforms and the cool kid factor, but the athleticism of it is much more evident in Rollerball. And part of me wonders if that's because that's a man's movie. I don't know. I, I kept thinking when I watched Rollerball this time around about how it seemed so Kubrick, Kubrickian. Is that a term? Can I say yep. that? Uh, thank you. <laughs> you are allowed. That. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. How Kubrickian some of those shots were. And that was 1975. So obviously Clockwork Orange was 1971. And there's a use of the Bach and these huge sort of sweeping shots of these facilities and these, you know, the lawns of this thing and the trees going up in flames and stuff. And I just thought, God, it's not that this movie takes itself too seriously. It's that sometimes when I watch With It, I know it's a comedy and I know it's for tweens, but I felt sometimes like I wish With It had taken itself a little more seriously. And that's ridiculous because I've always been part of the more beer, less rules crowd of roller derby. I liked having dumb names and penalty wheels, so I can't believe I'm chiming in on the more self-serious side. But I wonder how much of that is the gender appeal of who they think their target audience is. Or maybe it's just, you know, 40 years difference in how we make movies. I don't know. So every roller girl seems to have a really cool nickname. What was your nickname? Oh, I was Margaret Thrasher, Prime Minister of Your Demise. Like I said, in the early days, we, we were, there was a little more theatricality, and I loved the idea because I'm an actor, you know, so I tend to be a people pleaser and look for approval in my work life. So I really loved the idea of being a villain on track. I really wanted to be a very badly behaved, constantly booed individual on the track which I thought would be the height of fun. And I managed to do it for a little bit, but 
then I realized that I was hurting people. It's not good. I broke a friend's nose. That was not me clowning. That just happened. But it did sort of shed a light on like, oh, yeah, maybe I should. There was no, I don't think I could have prevented that. As a matter of fact, we didn't even know it was me that did it for a long time. But uh, there was a sort of uh, light that went off in my head about it, about endangering other people's safety that made me very careful after that point. But yeah, I, uh, my friend Brigitte Barho, uh, who played for the Bronx Gridlock, I just snapped my helmet up. She was sort of leaning a little far over me, and I snapped my head up to look where my teammates were and caught her right in the nose with the top of my helmet. Yeah, she's still a very pretty girl. Not that that's what's important, but she was a very pretty girl, and she is still. I did not ruin her effervescent beauty, <laughs> thankfully. So, Ashley, you mentioned you're an actress. People probably know you from The Wolf of Wall Street or Compliance or your turn on Rescue Me or any number of performances that you've done. You've been working for years and years, though you're still a young lady. <laughs> That's very kind of you to say. <laughs> what can people look for coming out soon from you? I'm appearing on Blue Bloods soon on CBS, episode five, the 19th episode of the season, so maybe not super soon. And then around the end of the year, uh, I will be appearing in two films that I've already shot. One is the upcoming Steven Spielberg film, St. James Place, and then the other is an indie called The Lennon Report, uh, which stars... Steph Dawson from The Hunger Games and Evan Jonakite from the X-Men franchise. Uh, and it's about the night that John Lennon was killed and the people of Roosevelt Hospital who, well, in part, it's about the people of, of Roosevelt Hospital, which is where he was taken and their ultimately futile attempts to resuscitate him, basically. And I play a real person, Nurse Sato, Deirdre Sato, uh, who was on duty that evening, head nurse of the emergency department. So those should both be coming out. I think they're aiming for Lennon Report to be out right around the 35th anniversary of John's death, which was uh, in early December. Have you played real people very often before? Only twice in compliance and then in the Lennon Report. I have played characters based on other people, I'm in which, I mean the writer or the director has come up to me and said, this is actually based on my friend or this girl I knew or this person, you know, but never, uh, never other than those two projects so explicitly. And you do definitely feel a responsibility to do justice to their experiences. I mean, I try and, and do that with every character, but it's a little more pressing, definitely, when you know that they're going to be sitting in an audience watching your version of them on screen. When you played those real characters, did you meet these people before you played them? or No, in neither experience. For compliance, I didn't watch anything. I knew that the story was what it was, but I never watched... I never watched any footage of her, the assistant manager, because I felt like I had to figure out how to get from plausible, rational, normal point A to no one would ever do that point B. And in order to do that, I felt like I had to chart my own path. And even then, I wasn't sure it was going to work. 
I mean, I think we all felt that on compliance. We were like, I don't know if I can make this happen, but let's all let's all try. And to his credit, Craig Zobel was the first person to say, I don't know if this is going to work, but let's see. Let's see if we can make sense of these people's actions, you know, see how that could happen. I purposefully, very purposefully did not watch anything or speak to the woman that I portrayed for compliance. And for this, I just didn't have the time. I was hired a very last second for Linen Report. I do know that Steph Dawson got to speak to both the lady that I played and the lady that she played because they were besties. They're still besties, apparently. But then Dear Tresedo went to Europe and was abroad, and I was unable to get in touch with her. So all I had was a recording of an interview. And so I got to listen to her voice and uh, hear her answers to some specific questions. And that was it. That was all I had to go on. And so I had to create it as much as I can and hope that she's okay with what I did. We'll see. (laughs) So, Ashley, where can people keep up with you? I uh, have a Facebook fan page that I would heartily encourage people to come and join. Also, you can find me on Twitter under my name, Ashley Atkinson. That's A-S-H-L-I-E. There's a lie at the end of my first name. Atkinson, A-T-K-I-N-S-O-N. And I mouth off about all manner of things over there. talking about rollerball before the break we talked about roller skating films of the 70s and of course there was a resurgence in roller skating or as it got hip as they put all those wheels in a row and made them a little thinner rollerblading and especially rollerblading in dystopian films starting around 1986 so there was what uh, rollerblade um and a couple others which here. was actually on skates <laughs> it's got the weirdest name <laughs> well, it's called rollerblade well, you know it's called blade runner but nobody's running around with a blade so so I don't. There's there's not a knife in that whole film. That's true, and they're not running on them. Train spotting. You only see a train real quick. I mean, they're not sitting there looking at trains. This is the most blatant case of fraudulent advertising since my suit against the film, The Neverending Story. Yeah, and we get a lot of uh, rollerblading in Solar Babies, which we'll be talking about later on this year. We're doing an uh, an episode that will drop on August 5th about Solar Babies. And then we had like uh, Rollerblade Warriors, one of my favorites, Prayer of the Roller Boys. So that's like 91. And we get into this whole like trilogy of the, the Rollerblade 7, where it was the legend of the Rollerblade 7, the return. We've got Airborne, which wasn't a dystopian film, uh, surprisingly, but then we go right back to a future sport in 1998. So yeah, it was just like 
roller blades really that well they replaced roller skates in a lot of ways and they replaced roller skates in the terms of importance of being <laughs> in films and for some reason man dystopian films and roller blades really went well together <laughs> so try to figure that one out yeah that's crazy i don't know but but really can you think of one that really works besides rollerball you know i don't know it's solar babies is well I wish you all luck on that one. That's <laughs> well, I'll tell you one that I don't think worked for you, Rob, was the 2002 John McTiernan remake of Rollerball. Yeah, this is this is not good. This is which good. I saw in theaters, by the way, because all, maybe opening weekend. Because all of the things that I talk about that the original doesn't have, this one has. Like, for example, it has the explanation and montage scene in the first three minutes to explain to you the game. Now, I had not seen this until I watched it after I had watched rewatched the 1975 film. So I completely avoided it when it came out. I had no interest in seeing it. And so I just watched it about a week ago, and I go, oh, okay, so they're doing that, and they're doing that, and they're doing that. They're basically taking everything that I wrote in my notes that if this movie was made today, this is what they would do. There was like a list, and, and like I said, that montage thing was one of them uh the other thing is they make the track overly complicated they remove all of this corporate control thing and it's basically sort of the i got the feeling that this is more about like like a corollary of underground wrestling and uh mixed martial arts idea trying to become legit because the jean renault character keeps talking about a cable deal throughout the whole thing and the fact that you have paul Heyman who plays the um the announcer who to me is the best part of the film because i remember seeing him in the documentary beyond the mat in which he was starting ecw and then eventually went on to work for world wrestling entertainment and he plays like a heel and does announcing and stuff like that for, for wrestling. So the idea that they hired this guy from the underground wrestling world to be the announcer and explainer of the universe, you know, sort of the, I guess, uh, the Harry Carey of uh, this this rollerball game here uh, is, is probably the best casting in this whole film. It's a steaming pile of mess. Uh, even... <laughs> I, I know people that say, oh, well, you know, you're watching the original Rollerball and I can't quite figure out who's who and what makes sense and what they're doing on the track. It's even worse in here. Like, it's edited so poorly, you can't even keep track of the action. It's just people bashing into each other and flying through the air. The mousetrap uh, clear tube and stuff, like the hamster thing. I'm like, what What the hell's going on here? Yeah, like so many weird things on the, the track, like the the scooper things that they have, which are apparently razor sharp because they tried to take out Jonathan Cross with one of these things and the masks that the players have. Played by Mr. American Pie, Chris Klein. And of course they have the, the black guy who's played by LL Cool J who is, you know, trying to help him. And, of course, the black guy has to die before the end because, you know, if you're the black guy, you have to die in the film. What's weird, they've got, like, the mentally challenged guy that's on the team, which I'm like, why are they letting this guy play rollerball? <laughs> and And he dies right off the bat, so it's kind of like... Moon Pie was split into two people. So we've got the sacrifice at the beginning with this guy, and then we've got Cool J being kind of the compatriot of Jonathan Cross for a while, and it just doesn't work. The only corporate-slash-societal discussion that's even in here is related to the fact that I think they're in Kazakhstan or something. They're in some satellite country in Russia, you know, the old former Russian Federation, and there's a mine, 
and they're worried about like revolts at the mine. So this guy brings the people, the miners in and they get to watch the game and that keeps them calmed down. And then eventually like the miners in the stands kind of revolt against the owner at one point, but it's such a minor plot point that you mean, they could have cut it completely out, but the only reason why they probably kept it in was that if they didn't, the film would probably be under an hour. I have no idea what they were trying to accomplish with this thing. It, it's like I said, it's a, it's a big loud video game music video is all it is to me. Well, I, I think the the, re, the remake, which I agree with you, was really poor. I mean, I, I think the the shift is that they want you to identify with the players to a to a closer extent and sort of not an artistic level. I, I guess it's like, yeah, it's like, yeah, I, I want to root for them and I want them to win. Whereas, I mean, you do want Jonathan E to win, but it's like a, it's just a different thing. It's a different context. It's more about the society around them and, and the impediments against him. It's not so much him and his, I, mean, I don't know, it's hard to say because you do see Moon Pines and you do care about his team members, but you know they're in, you know they're in a trap. You know, they're like within a trap within a trap because the society is kind of the trap. You know, the new one, it just doesn't have anything like that. It's just very sort of empty action, I guess you'd say. And and, and if you wanted to stack, okay, then the Jean Renault character is the John Houseman character. And is there anyone else who is in the new one that that is a comparable to the guy who's sort of running the show? And to me, the the Jean Renault character doesn't really do anything. All he does is party and try to keep his business going, which is this game. And he all he complains about is he just wants an American cable deal. That's the whole thing. And then they do the same thing in here as the original film where they're like, oh, we're changing the rules. And then there's people complaining that, well, why are they changing the rules and why are they doing this thing? So there are certain things that, that come over from the original, but it's not it, it's not handled even remotely as well. I mean, there was so much room to do so much more, and that's the thing that when I watched it, I was like, "This is, yeah, it's it's not very good." It's almost like they, they somebody looked at Rollerball and thought, you know, hey, this movie seems to be coming down on professional sports. Let's do a movie more like it where people, the professional sport is, is more like you can root for them. And it's like, yeah, that's cool. People like professional sports. So let's make Rollerball where you, it's not about it being a trap so much, you know, where it's more about it just being a game. I, I don't know. I, it just struck me as really confused. I mean, if I wanted to watch a, a film following a character in his struggle in a in trying to be a professional athlete in some way, I'd watch the wrestler, you know, cause I think Mickey Rourke in there does a nice job and he's like falling apart at the end. And he's like, can I keep doing this? And in all the struggles of trying to maintain and things like that in here, there doesn't really seem to be any, I don't feel any weight for the, the Chris Klein character at all. I'm just sort of like, Oh, so you're something happened in America and you had to get out of the country real fast. So you end up in Kazakhstan that whole opening, why was that opening even there? I mean, it's like when the movie started, like when the credits finally start, start, and we're over in the foreign country, which again, you're kind of taking away stakes because this isn't a worldwide thing. This is very much a Astan kind of thing, you know, anywhere that, that they speak any sort of Cyrillic language, you're, you're over, or Slavic language, you're over there. There's, it's not a worldwide thing, but yeah, that whole opening where he's like going down the street on that 
the whatever I, I don't know the like the luge kind of thing. Yeah. I'm like why did why was this even here? Is it just I guess it's just to propel him into the story. And again, the whole thing like you were saying, you brought up the whole incidence of the the Slavic language, and of course, anyone with a Slavic accent or Russian accent or Eastern European accent is sinister. So this is all part of that you know hostile and and all of that stuff, which of course I guess maybe goes back to to uh, the remnants of the Cold War in films, you know, like, uh, you know, James Bond or whatever, that therefore, you know, Russians are always evil, <laughs> sinister and shady. If anything, I would have liked to have seen the Rebecca Romaine character as the main character. She seems to be the one with the most going on. She definitely seems smarter than Jonathan Cross. And she's got her struggle as far as like, her face being scarred, so there's a little bit of gravitas. She's got a little thing going on, but he just seems like this blank slate so much of the time. And his one huge action scene, which I put huge in quotation marks, is basically trying to defect from the game and go out. And it's him and LL Cool J in the only scene I really remembered. Like I like I said, I saw this when the movie opened. And I rewatched it the other night, and I'm like, I don't remember any of this stuff. But then as soon as the night vision scene started, I was like, this is the only thing I remember. This is the only scene, just because it was the most ridiculous thing. And the whole thing is shot with that green tone, which makes no sense. Like, I can understand if a character is looking through a night vision goggles and we have their POV, it makes sense. But why is the whole thing under a green tone? It's not like there's green lights everywhere. I was waiting for Paris Hilton to show up. And they're being chased by a plane that's on the ground. They're, and at one point, they they turn their either their car or their motorcycle. I don't remember which they're driving at the point. I think the motorcycle. And it breaks through a fence. And there's the most cartoonish boing sound that you will ever hear. I mean, it sounds like it's right out of a Warner Brothers cartoon. And then they do it a second time when they go back on the road. <laughs> That encapsulates the whole movie for me. Just how ridiculous. It's like, you guys couldn't even find a good sound effect for this thing. You've got to be kidding me. I'm amazed there wasn't, like, Wilhelm screams all over the place. It does seem strange, though. I mean, because, you know, John McTiernan, regardless of anything that, you know, happened later, I mean, he's got a, you know, pedigree as far as his career and as far as being able to direct action and, you know, his sense of uh, visual movement and stuff. It seems like he would be, you know, a slam dunk to direct Rollerball, having done all the films he's done and yet you just wonder what 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 happened even even larry ferguson and john pogue as the screenwriters i mean you know they these guys uh you know ferguson had been involved with the hunt for Red october and um take it or leave it but highlander and some some really good films and then this was just like what are you doing here larry what i can't necessarily figure it out and then mctiernan i don't know what was going on at this point in his career because this was the second norman jewison film that he remade because i think right prior to this he had remade the thomas crown affair so it was kind of this strange period of his career where he was going to go through and i guess you know maybe jesus christ superstar was next or something i'm not sure yeah Yeah. He's going to do Fiddler, yeah, with... Uh, Fiddler with uh, Jean Reno yeah. as uh, Tevio? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Tradition! Tradition! 
I like Jean Renault, but he was practically chewing the scenery uh, up in this film. Yeah, I mean, I, Leon the professional. I mean, and, and other even even things like Ronan, he's good in. But it's just like I don't know what the hell's going on with him in here. And they were really playing up the whole idea of Jonathan as Spartacus at the end of this film. You talked about the miners and the revolution and all this kind of stuff. And here we do have. What happens after Jonathan wins the game, which just ends up turning into a regular action scene. And it's like, oh, gosh, you know, but he really is kind of held up a little bit as the leader of this revolution. And really, rather than chanting Jonathan, they should have just been chanting Spartacus, because that's really the way that the end of this film felt for me. It was bad. Yes. Now that we've buried that one, um, maybe we can talk about uh, two other versions of Rollerball that might actually be more interesting to watch than the 2002 one. Well, I will say that after Rollerball 1975 came out, there was Roller Babies 1976, which I watched this morning. It took a little bit for me to find it, but managed to find a copy of it. And terrific low production values i mean it's not top of the line uh adult film like we generally cover on the show it's no devil and miss jones uh scent of heather but there's some good stuff going on in this film some good sex scenes going on in the film and it's it's almost like this precursor to uh, Cafe Flesh, which is kind of interesting. It's set in the future, so we have this dystopian world, and it's 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 interesting because it's almost a precursor to Rollerball 2002 as far as the whole idea of television and entertainment being this whole thing of uh, you're not allowed to have sex in this future world for some reason. I believe it's because of the population growth, but the very frustrating sport of the day is to watch other people having sex. So they have these like sex cabarets where you go in and you watch these different entertainments. And at one point towards the end of the film, the, our main character, uh, Sherman Frobish ends up coming up with this idea of people having sex on roller skates. And now from the people who brought you the fucking suck show, it's Roller Babies, the fastest-moving sex show on television, in which four celebrity teams compete for big dollars, creating imaginative sex positions on roller skates. It's got some interesting um, uh, scenes in here. We've got some very futuristic uh, set dressings and stuff, but... Uh, it works. I think it works very well, and uh, I would definitely recommend people check out Roller Babies, 1976. From Carter Stevens, who's a decently known uh, adult director of that era. I, I feel very bad because I didn't look up this actress's name, but one of the main actresses is this very striking African-American woman with a shaved head, and it's like, I wouldn't expect to see you in a film like this. I think she's one of the few people of color that are in the film, and the whole idea of her having the shaved head, and she's very statuesque and everything, just like really kind of is surprising and she's just gorgeous and she really she knows her way around a cock too if you know what i'm saying she, she works on a chicken farm 
she could give a little bit better delivery, but her delivery is is so much better than anything I saw in Roller Bald, the uh, two thousand what was it two thousand two two thousand three something porn film that was cashing in on the John McTiernan Roller Ball film, which you liked a lot more than the <laughs> McTiernan film. Yes, I would rather watch Roller Bald than Roller Ball by John McTiernan any day. Because it's just horrible. It's like shot in some guy's garage. <laughs> the set decoration is horrible. The uh, The lead actress has that really bad lip issue, if you know what I mean, where it's like they're inflated with collagen, plus she has like like various levels of rings of color. They just look horrible. The line deliveries are bad. Like everything about this movie is bad, but at least it revels in its badness. you know. And they didn't spend... $50 million to make it, which to me is the biggest sin. It's just the waste of money and talent that go into these big budget Hollywood films that are not very good. I won't pretend to know what format this was shot on, though it does look very VHS-ish. <laughs> it was shot on an old handycam that someone got from the thrift store down the street. Yes, it was. Yeah, it's terrible. It looks it it looks bad, and it makes no sense. It makes like no sense either. So no. So so it has several things in common with the McTiernan film. The opening of the film has Joanna E, uh, the actress that you mentioned. She's roller skating down uh, the street, and meets up. With these two guys and the one guy the little guy uh, whose again name i didn't look up and i apologize to this actor you apologize to the little man i apologize to the little guy he <laughs> could not deliver one line without flubbing it he every time he goes to deliver something he flubs it and then there's this great moment he's talking about how she would be a great rollerballed player and it's this whole thing of this sport where you try to get off your players I, I don't want they didn't have the rules explained very well in this I don't want to get into it but at one point he gives her his business card they go away the two guys she's sitting there with the card and you hear from off screen someone go look at the card hi hi nice moves out there thanks yeah so I Walking along here. I'm uh, Roland Muldoon, and this is my training and uh, conditioning coach, Billy. What's up? And you are? Johanna. Johanna E. Nice to meet you, Johanna E. Nice to meet you. Tell me, have you ever heard of rollerballing? No. Is that a sport? <laughs> it's more than a sport. From the looks of your body, I could see you becoming a champion. Me a champion? I don't think so. You'd be surprised what you can do if you uh, put your mind to it. Where do you guys do this roller balling thing at? Well, I could arrange for you to take you there tonight. Really? Yeah. In fact, why don't you just give me a call, say around 8 ish, and right. we'll uh, have you picked up. Great. It's nice That's to meet safe. you, Miss Johanna. It's nice meeting you, Roman. Bye, Johanna. Bye. Look at the card. You sure that wasn't John McTiernan uh, uh, instructing Chris Klein on how to act? Have you ever seen the montage of all of Chris Klein's lines from Chun Li? No, no. The I, I told you this one has the uh, production value of go back to um, go back to Water Power. And when we talked about the Enema Bandit film, and the only good thing about that movie was that Sharon Mitchell's in it. And you don't even know it's her until like the very end or whatever. But like the production value is that bad. Like we 
just ripped on that. We're just like, what? Like you guys couldn't light this thing and you only had like one set and it's, yeah, it's, it, it's, a, it's bad. It is. It's, it's, it's not worth watching either, but it, at least it revels in its horribleness and, and I'm willing to accept that. And plus it was only made for like 35 cents. Yeah. And if you pay more than 35 cents to watch it, you've paid too much. <laughs> That's right. All right. So let's go ahead and take another break and we're going to play a clip for next week's show. Please listen to me very carefully. This is anything but a commercial. On January 1st, 1985, a time traveler from the future will arrive in time present in a TTM time-traveling machine on a special mission. He will carry with him a crucial message from his superiors in the 30th century to the leaders of the world in 1985, trying to convince them that advancing World War III would guarantee a better future. This is the story of that mission. I've never seen anything like this in my entire life. It's not human, I can tell you that. It's anything but human. They are robots. Did you say robots, Hiroshi? May I telecall you again after reaching destination? Well, as they say down there in the 20th century, don't telecall us. We shall telecall you. Hey, what's that? No electricity. Here too. What's going on? In tonight's news magazine, the blackout in New York City and Moscow. Well, I think, John, that somebody thinks that even if he tears the universe apart, Skinny Baby can put it together again. The trouble is, I don't think she can. The Red Alert, announced some ten minutes ago in the armed forces of the United States and the Soviet Union, has shocked both NATO and Warsaw Pact allies. future or uh, the future past or whatever yeah all right next week our friend yanni vettelstein talks to us about this israeli sci-fi film called message from the future we know it's a pretty rare film and if people out there want to see it uh luckily mike has been able to put it up on youtube so there's a link and if you go to our facebook page you can find it there and a few other places and uh make sure to check it out and watch it before we get on to talking next week about message from the future. Now, before we go, I want to thank this week's special guest co-host, John Kenneth Muir. And uh, John, uh, as we talked about, you have the, the book on sci-fi and fantasy film in the 70s and wanted to know uh, what are you currently working on? 
Yes, thank you. I, I want to say what a good time I had uh, being on the show. It was a pleasure being with you both. Uh, I'm actually working on a follow-up, science fiction and fantasy films of the 1980s. turned out to be a little bit of a bigger project than I anticipated because there were so many uh, fantasy films. So I'm, I'm thinking I might break it up. I might break it up into two books. We'll just see. But um, I'm working on that. My most recent book is horror films FAQ from Applause Theater and Cinema Books. And in September, um, my next book should be coming out, and it's also in the uh, Applause FAQ series, and it's, it looks at um, Chris Carter's The X-Files. It's the X-Files FAQ. So that's what, that'll be out in September, and I'm, I'm hoping to get science fiction and fantasy films of the 1980s out there, but it's turning out to be a huge book, so I don't know when that one's coming, but it's big. When looking at your CV, I mean, you have written how many books? Hundreds? <laughs> it feels that way. Sometimes. No, I, I, I actually, the, the one that's coming out in September uh, will be my 27th, or if I finish science fiction films of the 80s first, that'll be the 27th. So I, I think, or maybe, or maybe that'll be the 28th. I'll tell you, I, yeah, I've, I've lost count. You know, just because I'm old, I've, I've, I've written, I've been writing for a long time. So, well, and you've done some great, great work. I have to say, your book on Christopher Guest, the one on Purple Rain. I mean, some really terrific stuff. The the one that you did on horror films of the 1970s is definitely something that everybody should have in their library, as well as the book that we've talked quite a bit about this time, the science fiction and fantasy films of the 1970s. I mean, as you know, looking through what we've done in the past, we kind of love good science fiction films from the 1970s. And that you have a picture from Zardoz on the cover oh, yeah. should tell you, yes, should tell everyone that John Kenneth Muir knows what he's talking about. No, I love Zardoz. I do. I, I, I can't help it. <laughs> but thank you for such kind words. I mean, I, I agree with you that uh, science fiction films of the 70s, I mean, that's, that's the golden age of science fiction films. Um, I'm, I love Star Wars as much as the next person, but you know, the first half of the decade was really experimental and bold and ambitious and different. And you, know, you have all these amazing films from that period, uh, which... You, you know, are in, in many senses, you know, still the high water mark, I think, for science fiction films. You know, and so, so many of them, of course, have been remade, like Rollerball. But uh, you know, that, that was just a great time uh, for science fiction filmmaking, and uh, you know, post Star Wars was too. Uh, but it was a different kind of filmmaking. So it was, it's just a great decade, I think. And you know, you go back, and but those films uh, are what made a lot of us, I think, film fans in the first place. I know that's true for me. Well, I'm looking forward to reading the science fiction and fantasy films in the 1980s, and it does sound like you have bitten off quite a bit there. <laughs> well, I'll get to review Solar Babies. You are going to be revisiting that one, right? <laughs> I, I, as you said to us, uh, good luck. Well, thanks again, John, and we'll be sure to put a link to where people can keep up with you and your work over at our website, projection-booth.com. We want to thank everybody for listening. We hope you've enjoyed our efforts to bring just a little bit of sunshine into your lives. If you want to make our lives a little brighter, head on over to iTunes or wherever you get a hold of the show and write us a review, give us some stars. It warms our hearts and helps us in our quest to take over the world.
Jonathan. I'm uh, feeling mean, Mr. Bartholomew. It's good to see you. Jonathan E. That's the name. Houston's players come and go, but the champion plays on. Hey, what's this dude's name? 
That's our new speedball from Manila. Yeah, you know, you know, it's Tuffy. Come on up, Tuff. Oh, he's big honker. <laughs> Say, why don't you, you do me and the boys a favor? I mean, since you know everything there is. Uh, oh, which you appreciate. Just a little demonstration, show us how you make that big record. Skate around and take me out.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.